One of my issues with queer media is that we have a tendency to celebrate and uplift all of the same people. Pride Month comes around, and every magazine, every website writes about more or less the same five people. And I'm totally guilty of this too. I try not to be, but it still happens. This is a problem because we leave out people from the conversation who are making a real difference in the community and world. Jose Antonio Vargas is one of those people. He is a Pulitzer Prize winner, one of the leading voices for undocumented people, and the author of the best-selling book, Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Also, he's gay. I had been following his work and didn't even realize that until I read his book. Talking to him, that all kind of makes sense. As you will hear today, that is a part of his life that he is still very much figuring out. Now, I wanted to bring you this specific interview today for two big reasons. One, it originally aired last year on the Luminary app, so you have not yet heard it. And two, we are taking a short winter break. We'll be off for a couple of weeks, just a heads up there. And I wanted to leave you with an interview that is one of my favorites. Jose's story shows how deeply, deeply complicated everything concerning our immigration system is, from the system itself to how we talk about it and cover it in the news. While the Trump administration has exasperated many of these issues, these are things that existed before he took office and will continue after. They are not going to be magically solved with a new administration, and so I think that Jose's insights and experience are particularly valuable to hear. So let's do it. From The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A. So you grew up in America and didn't know you were undocumented until you went to get your license. You were 16. Yes. So four years after arriving here, I went to the DMV because I think my friend's friend Arvind was getting tired of driving me around like driving Miss Daisy. And so he was like, it may be time to go to the DMV. And I lived at the library. I mean, that's like where I spent a lot of my time was at the the Mountain View Public Library. And I saw in the library that to get a driver's license, you need to do these things, like bring a student ID and then bring proof of identification, which was like a green card or a passport. So yeah, I biked from my house to the DMV. I get called to the booth after waiting in line. And then that's when the woman said to me that the green card that I brought was fake. And my first instinct when she told me that was to think I am not Mexican. Because even back then, this was 97, whenever anybody said anything about fake papers, anything about documentation, the radio, the television shows, the newspaper said it was all about Mexican people. So that was my first instinct was to think I'm not Mexican, which is a horrible thing to think. But again, that's where the power of media is so is so important, right? Like it, back then, and again, this was 97, back then that was already part of the psyche, that whenever you thought about fake papers or quote-unquote illegal people, it was about Mexican people. And also you were 16. I was 16. That's kind of started this whole thing. And for my grandfather, I confronted him afterwards, of course, and my grandfather said, yeah, it's fake. You're not supposed to show that to people. And that's when basically the plan that he and my mother and my grandmother had concocted kind of exposed itself to me. That's when I found out what their plan was. 
And so that was over 20 years ago. Long ass time ago. And I bring that up because yeah. since then there's been no change or resolution oh. in your immigration status. That is such a long period of time to live with that stress and ambiguity. And that's what I was getting at in the book. What I was really interested in, the main question I had was, why am I this messed up? Why do I have a hard time having relationships with people? Why, why is it that it seems as if I have created borders and walls, like, with the way I treat my own friends? Like, I've, you know, I'm 38 years old and I've never had a boyfriend. Like, what is that about? I've never been in like a, a committed, long relationship with anybody because what was the point? I was going to get deported. I was going to leave. I, I always had this feeling that everything was temporary. Nothing was permanent. And so even that, that was the way I even had sex with people, you know? It's like, okay, we're done. I'll see you later. <laughs> what are you still doing here? What am I still doing here? Like, get out. It's so interesting hearing you say all this because you also say that coming out as undocumented was such a bigger deal than coming out as gay. Well, because I think I had the privilege of living where I lived, you know, like I was in Mountain View, which is what, an hour south of San Francisco? And in an incredibly unaccepting family. That, but then I had a very accepting school. They kind of balanced each other out. So my Catholic Filipino family was like, what is this gay thing? You're supposed to get married to a woman and be a U.S. citizen. I would actually argue that now that I've come out about the undocumented thing, I'm trying to understand the gay thing because I never really, I'm the kind of person, I think I went to a gay pride parade maybe once in my life. No, twice. I went to the one in New York too, but I didn't want to be there. Like, I don't know what gay pride is. Like, I'm still kind of confused by gay pride because maybe because I haven't dealt with my, in many ways I came out, but I came out in, 2000, in 1999. It was a few months after the Matthew Shepard killing that tragedy i came out out of necessity because if i had not come out as gay then my grandfather's plan was for me to marry a woman who was a u.s citizen and try to get my papers that way so coming out that first time was like a way of saying wait a second no one lie was enough i'm not going to lie about this but because i've been in the closet about the undocumented thing i would argue that i'm probably still in the closet about the gay thing because i'm still dealing with that like i don't know what that really is for me. Does that make sense? It does. Is that the reason why your website and your book doesn't mention being gay on like the back cover or the inside flap or anything? Oh my God, see, I didn't even realize that. Do I not mention it? Not once. And on the Amazon page... <laughs> That's so I, yeah. interesting. On your Amazon page for your book, there's not gay, LGBTQ, queer, nothing is mentioned once. You're not joking. No. Jeff, I did not know this. I thought that was a choice made by your like PR and marketing. Oh God, team. no, 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 no. I mean, I'm. Wow. Okay. Um. Well, this, this is probably why I can't get in a relationship because I can't. <laughs> well, I, I. You just like totally open up this whole. I don't, dude. I don't. I. I. Hmm. I have been accused. I remember when I first started doing this eight years ago. I did Rachel Rachel Maddow's show pretty early on. Right, because you know she she's incredible, of course, and I remembered getting an email from like an LGBTQ leader, uh, who I know because when I was at the Washington Post, I was actually a reporter who wrote a lot, a lot about LGBTQ issues. Right, like I was one of the I think there was like three of us at the Washington Post at the time who was openly gay. You reported on the epidemic. And I reported yeah. epidemic. Like I reported a lot on these things, so I was really open about that. But this this guy that I knew sent me a note after the Rachel Maddow interview saying. You're not advocating for gay people. Like you're you don't you you're not talking about being gay enough. And I was like, 
I'm pretty gay to me. So, like, I don't know what that means. Um, I don't think I responded because I didn't know what to say. But now that you're mentioning that, you know, being undocumented, being this quote-unquote illegal person has been such a defining question in my life that I think everything else, I can't see being gay without seeing being undocumented, right? And mind you, this is the, the undocumented youth movement has been led by so many LGBTQ people. You know, there's been so many trans women, right? Genesette, for example, right? Yeah. Who famously, I mean, I remember seeing that video of Genesette, you know, Genesette Gutierrez. Yeah, Genesette at the White House with President Obama being surrounded by mostly white LGBTQ people. And she, Genesette, was holding President Obama accountable for his deportation and detention and detention policies. And everybody was like, ah, not the right time, not the right place. You know, that was interesting for me getting to know the movement. But it's interesting. I think I'm still, maybe that's what the 40s are going to be about. <laughs> I'm 38, two more years. I was excited to talk to you because, one, I think that our immigration system is so fucked up. Yeah. But I bought your book because I wanted to hear about an undocumented experience from someone undocumented. And then I like it was a delight to see that you were also gay because you write about it extensively in the book. It's not hidden by any means. No. You know how I think about it? I think about it from a global perspective. The fact that so many LGBTQ people have to escape where they're at because where they're at is not welcoming criminalizes their sexuality and again you know i haven't seen the world right the only thing i know is america so i'm trying to do projects and do things that allow me to at least be creatively free in the way i think of the world like i may not be able to go to the uk but i want to understand how does the uk treat you know immigrants and lgbtq people i'm surprised that you don't have that many gay friends you said just because i think we would understand the experience of not feeling at home not feeling safe, not knowing what our future will hold. I mean, maybe that's the deeper... It almost feels as if I'm still in this process of really getting to know myself in the context of what this is. There's a line in that book that when I wrote it, I was so scared after writing it that I actually, I think I left the computer screen and took a long-ass walk. Do you remember the line? Yeah. Home is not something I should have to earn. After I wrote that line, I remember looking at the computer going like, ay, ay, ay. and you know, at the top, I had, I had this quote from Toni Morrison. It was like one of my oracles. And I keep, I have to, I have put it at the very top of the computer so that whenever I feel like I'm going to my reporter mode where I'm better talking about other people than myself, I have to remind myself that, oh, this is actually my book, Jose. I, me, and mine. Do not be scared of I, me, and mine. I feel, I think. So the quote is, I stood at the border, stood at the edge, and claimed it as central and forced the world to move to where I was. So this idea of not writing about myself to appease people or to convince people or to justify my humanity or to prove that I'm worthy or to, you know, any any sort of legislation about undocumented people from Republican or Democrats are going to say, oh, yeah, earned citizenship. What do I have to fucking earned? What have you earned? Right? Reminding myself that I actually have a right to exist. Like, because my physical body is here, I take up space. That is actually an inherent human right that no government can really dictate. That line of home is not something I should have to earn was cathartic for me. It was, it, it was catharsis. That really, for me, was life-changing. I have made now different choices about my life. 
Because, you know, I don't know if you could tell this, Jeff, when you were reading the book. I wrote the book thinking I was going to leave. That's why it ends the way it ends. I wrote it thinking, I'm going to write this book. I have an advance. I have, you know, I save some money. I'll see you later. Let me go see Mexico because, you know, everything's a Mexican. So let me at least go see Mexico. The book ends <laughs> fairly unambiguously. I wanted that. I wanted this sense of, I think I'm going to go. And then I finished the book. And then I'm realizing that um, not only am I not done, but home is already here. And it's not a physical space. I thought that. I thought it's a physical space. You rent a house. You buy furniture. Home is actually all of these people in my life that have made me feel at home. And I made an effort in the book to really name them. And you know what? A recurring theme in your book is the, the kindness of strangers. People, yeah. You have some amazing relationships. There's a chapter called Strangers, right? That's yeah. like literally just about that. Yeah. And, and that started with the woman at the DMV. Yeah, I didn't even know her name. Curly hair, glasses, white woman. I, I have no idea what her name that is. That story could have ended very differently. She could have reported me and I could have been arrested right then and there. And I bring that up because when you say this is a book about an undocumented person, I don't think the first thing you would think of is like, oh, I bet people are so kind to him. I bet he's been helped along the way. So that was really important to me just because I think... That is the context that we're missing. And that's why, to me, this has to be a question of community, right? Like, what is the community that you built for yourself? Who are the people who have welcomed you? Why? Why did I think you belong? I think I'm so used to cutting my identities into pieces because that's what I've had to do to survive. That's what I've had to do to try to pass. That now I'm just grappling with looking at myself holistically and saying that, I'm undocumented, I'm gay, I'm Filipino. Like, all of that is a part of who I am. It's not everything that I am, but all of that make up my DNA, right? And I think that's something that all of us, that's a lifelong process, you know? But at least to look at yourself and say, what am I not asking myself? What am I afraid of? Why why, why am I doing what I'm doing? And that's why with all of the the rhetoric and the hateful language around immigration today, something that I can't figure out is that all of that is in direct contrast to what we know in our personal lives, since all of us know immigrants, right? Everyone has experienced immigrants, and we are not able to like say that these things don't add up when we're yeah. hearing about these negative things in the news. But this is why at Define American, you know, Define American, let me just say, was completely inspired by the LGBTQ movement, meaning the LGBTQ movement that was about changing hearts and minds, the movement that was about how do we change the culture in which people talk about an issue and make it about people. So a lot of what we do is consult on television shows and movies into how much into how they portray accurately and humanely immigrants, including undocumented people. So when you see an undocumented character on TV, it's mostly likely because they find American talk to the show. So when we see Nico Santos, absolutely, actually, what happened? A gay with, Filipino. What happened with that was we found out that there was a character, an undocumented gay Filipino, and we're like, oh, that sounds interesting. So we contacted them, Superstore at NBC, and then we went to the writers' room. Because originally that character, they were trying to figure out how to make that character legal. And we're like, you can't. <laughs> what do you mean you're going to make him legal? Uh, when, you, when you figure that out, can you tell us? Because, you know. And so that's how, that's how that character, I love that that character has been allowed to show the complexity of this identity. When the writers were saying we want to make him legal, can you explain just that's not as easy as a thing as people think? Actually, right? that is probably I get asked two questions a lot. Why? One, why haven't they deported you? I have no idea. 
right? As you know, in the book, I actually talked about when I called ICE myself and saying, I haven't heard from you. I'm here. What's up? I mean, could it just be your fame as protecting you? I mean, my fame, whatever it is, is not enough to, you know, keep me from getting detained in Texas four years ago when Obama sure. was president. A way that I deal with this of, of my privilege is making sure that I am consistent and disciplined in saying that I'm not here to be an exception. That is not my job. Like, I don't know why. Why is it that, you know, in this anti-immigrant era, why am I still here? I have no idea. The other question that for me is probably more important is why can't these 11 million people can get legal? You know, you know, you know where I get that question from? Journalists. So if journalists themselves don't know how undocumented people, that there's no process for undocumented people to legalize their status, there's no easy process, then we're really in trouble. Because you would need to go back to the Philippines for like at least two years. Ten years. Ten, oh, excuse it, me. You, you would face what's called a 10-year bar, thanks to what Bill Clinton signed into law in the mid-1990s, right? Like if I were Mexican and if I had crossed the border more than twice, I'm banned for life. We meet so many undocumented Mexicans who are married to U.S. citizen women. And even though they're married to a woman, even though they have U.S. citizen kids, they can't adjust their status because they've crossed the border more than twice. Have we made the immigration system so complicated on purpose because oh, yeah. of xenophobia? Well, that and I think it's, it's, it's xenophobia. A lot of it is, of course, also economic policies, right? If you look at it from a political perspective, and look, I, was, uh, I, I mean, I was a political reporter. I know how this works. In many ways, it serves the Republican and Democrats a purpose to keep this an issue and not to solve it. To just keep saying, vote for us, we're going to protect immigrants. That's why for me, l- using the LGBTQ model... As, a, as, as really like a framework, right? You cannot change the politics of an issue unless you change the culture in which people talk and discuss and view what the issue is. If you were to look at, at, at actually surveys and opinion polls that have been done, for so many progressives, immigration is not even in the top five of their priorities, right? The environment is always up there. Legalizing marijuana is always up there. Immigration, I think we're like six or seven on the list. Now, mind you, we're in a country, I'm a journalist, so I like numbers. In the next 50 years, according to the Pew Research Center, there are 45 million immigrants in America today. 45 million, 11 million of whom are undocumented. Together, those 45 million people, according to the Pew Research Center, will constitute 88% of the total U.S. population growth in the next 50 years. That is a massive number. Meaning, immigration reform is way way beyond policies and politics. It's about what does your classroom look like? Who's buying groceries? Who's starting businesses? How are they portrayed in television and movies? So this is really about defining American, right? That's why we didn't call our organization Defined Immigrant. And there are so many words for immigrants, like un- undocumented, illegal, alien, refugees and migrants. What is your preferred term for your experience? So I... Look, anything that doesn't say illegal, because people can't be legal. I mean, just from a just from a purely grammatical and moralistic sense, like people cannot be illegal. Don't we know our history enough to know that when we do that, like that's how actually the Holocaust gets to happen when we think a group of people, right, are quote unquote illegal. So I, that, but for me, undocumented is interesting because it it exposes this idea that people's lives are limited and defined by papers. I was doing an event in North Carolina, and this elderly black woman grabbed me and says, Mr. Vargas, I got to go talk to you. I'm like, okay. She opened up this crumpled piece of paper from her purse, and she said, this is a bill of sale. I had never seen one before. It's a bill of sale. She gives my great-great-grandmother landed in Charleston 
and was given this bill of sale saying that she's a slave. So can you connect the pieces of paper that she got, this crumbled old piece of paper, to the pieces of papers that you and your people can't seem to get? And then she goes, this is bigger than papers, Mr. Vargas. Think bigger. And then she like walked away. And I was like, I was literally gobsmacked by this. I felt like some, some bomb just exploded in my head. So that was really important for me. It really made me realize that the construction of papers, the construction of laws, this has always been about who has power to do it. Gay people know all about this. Like people's power to say, oh, I'm sorry, sodomy is against the law. The power to say, oh, you can't do that. Right? And so who gets to define that? What she said was earth shattering for me because it made me realize that I really needed to connect dots. You know, I was thinking about why I was thinking about why I did not know that the immigration system was so complicated and yeah. complex. And I realized that part of our national history, this national story we tell, is about Ellis Island. That's where my great grandmother came to this country and she got off the boat and she signed her name and she was welcomed in. That process is so easy, and that's the process that is often taught in history classes. And you know, unless you're Native American, unless you're an enslaved African who was held captive and forced to come to build this country, you're an immigrant. You came from somewhere. And I think that has to be part of the conversation, you know? And I would argue what, what to you're saying, what we are living through, what we're facing is the fact that we have never faced the full force of our history. Americans are, tra- what, you know, what, what would James Baldwin say? You know, white people are trapped in a history that they do not understand. And I think, I hope, I, I hate that phrase, silver lining, But I just hope one of the reaction of what's happening is that all of us would want to understand our history much fuller. That's why in the book, I'm sure you noticed that the word on the cover is underlined as citizen. I did not call myself undocumented American. I did not call myself undocumented immigrant. I wanted to give myself permission to know that I'm a part of a global movement of people, of which there are 256 million migrants. I wonder how many of those, by the way, are LGBTQ trying to escape where they come from because where they come from doesn't accept them. So now... What does citizen mean? What does it mean to be a citizen? How do we, how do the people fighting for the Black Lives Matter movement, LGBTQ movement, the Me Too movement, the income inequality movement, the immigrant freedom movement, what do we all have in common? How do I sit here in front of you, claim myself, stand up straight, sit up straight, all the while knowing that I'm never the only person in the room? We all share a space, whether or not we like it. So you've said that defining home is going to be the work of your lifetime. How and where do you currently define it? Well, home is how do I honor all these people that have made me feel home? Probably the most surreal thing that's happened so far is the school district I attended as a kid ended up naming this elementary school after me, which is like bananas. And I was sure that it was not going to happen. I was like, they're not going to name a school an elementary school. But then to my surprise, it happened. And to my surprise, I was assuming that there would be people from my community who would say no for various reasons. Because then I started thinking, because they may be against whatever, but what they cannot do is they can't deny that I'm from there. That's where I'm from. I learned how to write because of the Mountain View Public Library. I am an, I'm educated because of Crittenden Middle School and Mountain View High School. All of the people who have been my mentors and who have who I've been a part of a conspiracy of kindness and generosity are everybody from Mountain View. So that's where I'm from. That's home. And so now, 
and thank you for saying that, the work of my life is trying to really interrogate what that means for other people. How do we, how do we create policies? How do we have conversations that lead to people feeling like they have a home? A, a friend reminded me what a blessing it is to know what my purpose is, right? He was saying uh, purpose equals power. Like I'm very fortunate to have realized and to have the skills to do what I need to do, but to do it in my way. That's amazing. Last question. Yeah. It's a two-parter. Okay. In terms of your future oh, and like immigration, yeah. et cetera, what is the best case scenario and what is the most likely scenario? Ah, the most likely scenario is nothing's going to happen. <laughs> and you'll live like this forever. You know, forever seems forever. So like I try, you know, I may get up one day and say, okay, I'm done. I really want to go see the world. I'll see you later. I'm, And, you know, I want to give myself permission to do that. Right. Like I don't need to make a decision. Like I have to actually realize what is best for myself. The greatest, one of the greatest difficulties in life, James Baldwin says, is to say yes to yourself. So I'm giving myself permission to always say yes to myself. And then what is the best case scenario? Best case scenario is our government will figure out a way to legalize and stabilize the status of 11 million undocumented people. I will have the papers right, to go see my mom in the Philippines and my sister and meet a brother I've never met. He's 20. And then to see the world. Like, I can't wait to do that. Like, I can't wait to, like, I cannot wait to see the world and air and breathe, like, a different kind of air. Like, I can't wait to, like, experience something beyond what I already know. Thankfully, after the book, I'm realizing that there's time. Like, I don't need to be in a rush all the time. I'm giving myself time that it's okay. You know, I'm only 38, which I know for some gay people is like hella old. But for me, thankfully, we're Asian. You know, I'm Asian, so we age well. So thankfully, you know, I'm not old to myself and there's still a lot of time. And that is Jose Antonio Vargas. Once again, his book is called Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Now, as a reminder, we're taking a winter break. We will be back in a few short weeks. And until then, come find me and connect on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. The podcast is on there at LGBTQPod. We love hearing from you and seeing your suggestions for guests every week. So thank you so much for that. And keep them coming. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our work at advocate.com, glad.org, and lgbtqpodcast.com. All right, we will see you in the new year. I can't wait. Bye.